All right, hey, Second Kings. We are getting close to the end of the book. We're still looking at Hezekiah. We're kind of finishing one last section of Hezekiah's life. Um, what you could kind of put all into this second problem that he has faced. Um, before we read, let me kind of uh, give you a quick word of apology that I have been pronouncing the king of Assyria's name wrong this entire time. And Pastor Steve knew and decided not to tell me anyway. So I appreciate that a lot. But it's Sennacherib. And so if you need to know how to remember it, I've just been telling myself a snack of ribs. And, uh, and then it just makes me hungry. So, but uh, a desire, that's it. Yeah. So Sennacherib, Sennacherib. Okay, that's his name. Now let me give you, because in doing and studying for this week, I found some other research about Sennacherib and his military to help you understand fully the context of what's going on right here. If you can remember, really, in 18, when they first came into the picture, and then in chapter 19, um, the second time that he's come to them, Sennacherib has, has been on this mini-world contest, um, con, um, conquest, I'm sorry, up to this point, and he has conquered, at this point, 46 city-states and kingdoms. If you can remember back a couple of months in that, like, that message, that nasty message that he sent um, to Hezekiah, he's saying all of these people have stood before me and they've all fallen. What makes you think you're going to be any different? Think about that. 46 city-states and kingdoms he's conquered. I'm pretty sure if you've done that, you feel invincible, don't you? That's how Sennacherib felt. But in 2 Kings 19, he now brings this military to um, Jerusalem, and, and, and historians tell us that it was a quarter of a million troops. Think about that. 250,000 troops have surrounded Jerusalem, and they're camping outside the walls. Now, this is a massive army, and it's really massive when you consider what they were going up against when we believe that the city of Jerusalem at that point was only about 10,000 people and that his soldiers was actually a little less than 2,000. So 250,000 versus 2,000. Who likes those odds? Anybody? Yeah, no, not good, right? So then you think about that in light of this story where they continue to stay silent, right? When, when, they, when, um, when they bring these threats against them. But also you understand when Hezekiah got that threatening letter, why he went and spread it before the Lord. There's no way he's taking them down on his own, right? So he goes before the Lord, if you remember from two weeks ago, and he begins to pray and ask God to intervene, to work in this. We talked about how, we can, how can this can affect our prayers when we go through trials. So with that kind of background, let's pick up now God's response to Hezekiah's prayer. And we'll pick up in verse 20. It says, Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I have heard your prayer to me about King Sennacherib of Assyria. This is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Virgin daughter Zion despises you and scorns you. Daughter Jerusalem shakes her head behind your back. Who is it you mocked and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. You have mocked the Lord through your messengers. You have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I cut down its tallest cedars, its choice cypress trees. I came to the farthest outpost, its densest, densest forest. 
I dug wells and drank water in foreign lands. I dried up all the streams of Egypt with the soles of my feet. Have you not heard? I designed it long ago. I planned it in days gone by. I have now brought it to pass, and you have crushed fortified cities and piles of rubble. Their inhabitants have become powerless, dismayed, and ashamed. They are plants of the field, tender grass, grass on the rooftops, blasted by the east wind. But I know you're sitting down. You're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you're raging against me, and your arrogance have reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. I will make you go back the way you came. This will be a sign for you. This year you will eat what grows on its own, and in the second year what grows from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For a remnant will go out from Jerusalem and survivors from Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord's armies will accomplish this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city. Shoot an arrow here and come before it with a shield or build up a siege ramp against it. He will go back the way he came and he will not enter this city. This is the Lord's declaration. I will defend the city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now listen to this. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh. And one day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons, Adremelech and Sherzer, struck him down with a sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. Then his son, Esarhaddon, became king in his place. An interesting story, isn't it? We've kind of ended this one little section. This, this king who has just been a thorn in Hezekiah's side this whole time, we hear today of his very downfall. Once again, I know I'm calling back, but if you go back to chapter 18, you see where the Lord promises that Hezekiah is going to die. And I told you we'd find out soon when that would happen. Well, here we find out that, that he is killed by his sons. But what I want to do tonight is talk about the Lord's response to Hezekiah. And really, you can break it down into three different sections. Those three sections are here. You see a song, a sign, and a promise. A song, a sign, and a promise. Let's start with the first one. The first section of this message to Hezekiah is a song. Verses 21 through 28 are a literary genre called a mocking song or a taunting song. This is something that you would see in this, um, this, the time in which this was written in this old um, this old writing, these mocking or taunting songs. You can even look at how it's written here. If I had the original, if I had it in like how the Bible would put it, the scriptures itself would take up five pages because it is in um, poem form. So it's going to be a few words at a time. It's a song. Now to, to kind of describe to you what a mocking song or a taunting song is like, it's kind of difficult. Let me give you a bad understanding of what it would look like in our world today. If you're going to think of a mocking song or a taunting song, think of a song 
like what Taylor Swift has written after she's broken up with her ex-boyfriends, okay? In fact, I'm going to read you some of those very lyrics so you can understand what it would be like. Here's one of them. You can just pick which boyfriend it was. This is the chorus. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. It's literary genius right there is what that is. Here's another one. Someday I'll be living in a big old city and all you're ever going to be is mean. Why you got to be so mean? That was her taunting song. I could read you all the lyrics from her verses and it would help make more sense to you. But also let's understand that that is one of the greatest selling artists of all time and let us think about our world today when that is the lyrics being written. No, but okay, this song, this taunting song, I'll be honest, I like a little bit of Taylor Swift myself. I'm not going to lie. So, okay. You can actually break this song down into three groups, really, three sections as well. In the first section of this taunting song, we see God demonstrate his love for the people of Israel. Not only his love, but also his protection for these people. Verses 21 and 22, listen to these words. He says, virgin daughter Zion despises you and scorns you. Daughter Jerusalem shakes her head behind your back. Who is it you mocked and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. How does he, how does the Lord describe Israel right here? He describes her as a virgin daughter. Think about that word, what that means. God describes Jerusalem, this city, as an innocent girl. He pictures them this way, why? To communicate how protective he is over them right? And like any kid who has seen their kids hurt before, he then tells them this, to then mock Israel, to mock Jerusalem, is actually to insult me. It's to insult God himself. Why? He's communicating something that we know today, you don't mess with somebody's children. God is saying, this is my kids. You don't mess with them. He starts off, he comes out hot in this. It reminds me of a time when I was in fifth grade. I was playing on a basketball team, a county basketball team. We were pretty good. We'd won the county tournament, and we were now playing a district tournament, had a chance to win and go to the state tournament. And uh, one of the teams we were playing, we were just crushing them, destroying them. My parents were sitting up in the stands, and um, all of a sudden, the lady sitting behind my mom begins to just say terrible things about me and then one of my teammates. Just horrible things because we were beating the, her son's team so bad. Over and over, nonstop, terrible things. Things that I am not going to repeat up here, okay? Well, my mom, if you can imagine, she's not going to take that for too long, right? And so about halfway through, she stands up and turns around and says, excuse me, that is my son that you're talking about, and you're not going to say those things about my son. Well, then she proceeded to stand up as well, and to my demise, there's nothing like being on the court and looking up as your mom is now in a verbal fight with another lady up in the stands of this, of this game. But why does she do that? You're not going to talk about her kid like that, right? It helps you see what's going on here. God is so passionate about this, about what is being said here, that he's saying, look, no, Israel, Jerusalem is like my virgin daughter. And if you're going to talk about her, you're really going to talk about me. You've insulted me in this. And he goes on. Next thing he does is he humbles the Assyrians. In verses 25 and 26, 
And then another passage that's parallel to this in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 9 through 15, God tells the, um, the king and really all of Assyria that the only reason that they've been successful at all is because he was the one in charge of it. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, God calls Sennacherib his instrument. He said, I've used you basically like a rod or a staff in my divine hand. He's saying, you think that you are powerful, but the only reason that you've conquered anything at all is because of me. I'm the one who's allowed you to do it, right? It's like when I do something with my kids. My youngest, my boy's got a basketball, um, one of those basketball goals for Christmas where it's got two goals on it and you know, you shoot and try to, you get points and you try to beat each other. Well, my five-year-old just cannot beat my seven-year-old in this game. And typically it means my five-year-old comes up crying because Titus won't let him win. So one day I went down and I began to play with Haddon. And of course, you know, we smoked Titus in that game of basketball. And how did Haddon react? I did it! You know, <laughs> I beat you, Titus. I did it. And of course, Titus is like, no, no, you didn't. And, and Titus is right. Haddon scored one basket. I scored 35. He scored one. <laughs> how did Haddon win? He won because I was the one who was really doing all the work behind him. And right then, what's hap what God is saying here is, Sennacherib, you think that you've done all these great things. It's me. You, haven't, you can't do it without me. He's humbling him. He's saying this, Sennacherib, your boasting has no foundation because it was God who brought all these accomplishments to pass, not you. Something like this should serve as a great reminder to us all. You and I are tempted to boast. We are tempted to look and see what it is that we've accomplished, what we have done, and think, man, I'm pretty good. You see, when we are tempted to think in that way, what we need to do is remember who it is that truly supplied the power and made it really possible in our lives. Paul describes it this way when he's talking to the people in Corinth. He says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's only one person that you and I can boast in today, and that is the Lord. Reminds me of lyrics of one of my favorite songs in which it says this, that I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. May we be constantly reminded where the power, where the success really comes from. And then finally, the last little piece of this is we see that God promises that the Assyrians will go home. They will not enter into Jerusalem. In verse 28, he says, because you're raging against me and your arrogance have reached my ears, listen to what he says, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. I will make you go back the way you came. Seems kind of intense, doesn't it? A hook in your nose, a bit in your mouth. Why is he saying this? 
Well, did you know that that's actually what the Assyrians would use when they would conquer these other countries? They would literally, I mean, this is, this is how they would do. They would literally put hooks in people's nose, bits in people's mouths like they were horses, and drive them like cattle out of their land. And so what God is saying is this, is that I'm going to treat you the same exact way that you've treated the others around you, the ones you've conquered. I think you leave this song pretty humbled, don't you? <laughs> That's how he does. He begins with a song. Second of all, and I'm going to go quickly on this one, he goes to a sign. Verses 29 through 31, there's a sign there. He says, here's how you can know that I'm going to be successful for you, that I'm going to work for you. He said that, that the land, the first two years you're in this land, you're going to have to just live off of what's there. It's been trampled. Just You're going to eat what it is that just naturally grows up from that land. But on year three, year three, you're going to be able to sow and reap new crops and plant new vineyards, and you're going to enjoy those things. And here's why he tells him that. He said, he says, then just like those crops, a surviving remnant of you, I love how he says it, will take root downward and bear fruit upward. And it's going to happen because of the zeal of my name. He says, look, I am going to protect you. I am going to sustain you. In the first couple of years, it's not going to look like it. You're not going to have much to eat. You're not going to have much to live on. But know this, in year three, it's going to come back. And that is a picture of what I'm going to do with you. When it seems like there's nothing left, just know I am going to make sure that my remnant is still there. And here's why. Why is that remnant important? Anybody know? Why do we still need a remnant in Judah at this time? Yeah, the, the Sunday school answer. I mean, you could have just said Jesus and you would have been right tonight. If the remnant is not there, then Jesus is not there, right? God says, I'm going to sustain you because I love you, but ultimately I'm going to sustain you for my very purposes to save the world. <laughs> Here's where I think we need to lean on this today. I think this is a great reminder to us that we can rest today knowing that our God is not done with, done with us and even in the times when it's bleak even in the times when it feels like there is no light at the end of the tunnel you and I can trust that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose we can trust that now that doesn't mean that life is always going to be easy life is going to be simple all things are going to be good but it does mean that God is always going to be good and that his plans are always going to come forth and it's going to be for our good we can trust in that he said you're going to see a sign and then finally we'll finish up here he gives them a promise verses 32 through 34 therefore this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria he will not enter this city Shoot an arrow here, come before it with a shield, or build up a siege ramp against it. He will go back the way he came, and he will not enter this city. This is the Lord's declaration. I love this. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Once again, this reminder of the remnant right there, for the sake of my servant David. He says, God, God says, I'm going to defend this. I'm going to be there. And we know that this happens because in verse 35, it says that while they are all sleeping, the Lord, the, the, the angel of the Lord goes in and kills 185,000 Assyrians in the camp. Imagine what that was like the next morning when you wake up. There's 250,000 of you and the next morning you wake up and three quarters of you are gone. I think you're pretty terrified. I think you're scared. And so then, obviously, Sennacherib knows that he doesn't stand a chance there. And so he goes back home. And when he goes back home, his own sons kill him. 
Can I give you some proof today that this actually happened? Because it sounds like a crazy story, doesn't it? Can I, can I nerd out on some history for just a moment as we finish up? Is that okay? Did you know that archaeologists have actually uncovered Sennacherib's palace in Nineveh? And in that palace, they have found a wall where Sennacherib have laid out all of his conquests. He's inscri- he had inscribed all of his victories there. He lists out each of his victories and then details about each of the conquests. Like detailed, here's how I defeated them. Here's how many of them I slain, that I laid down, I killed. But here's what's interesting. When it comes to, this, to Jerusalem, clearly says Jerusalem, but all it says is that he had Hezekiah trapped like a bird in a cage. Remember how we started this whole thing, that was the case. They were surrounding them, they're inside the city. All it says is they had him trapped like a bird in the cage, but strangely though, it never talks about anything happening after that, like it does all the other cities that were conquered. Well, we know why. Because they all got killed. They didn't make it, and then he himself died. Don't you love when history proves the Bible to be real? (laughs) When archaeologists study this and find, oh wait, Like, this isn't just some made-up book. This is real stuff. Let me leave you with this. There's a military historian called William McNeil, and he wrote a book called What If? And he calls this battle between the Assyrians and the people of Jerusalem the most important battle that never happened. He said if Sennacherib had been victorious, Judah would have been destroyed, and there would have been no continuing nation, no Israel for Jesus to be born into, therefore no church. Human history would have been fundamentally altered and you and I wouldn't even be sitting here today. Think about that. The most important battle that never happened. He said this, another way he says it is, the most fateful might have been in recorded history. And and this is what makes it so remarkable to him. He said there was no natural reason for people to defy Sennacherib. Remember, Jerusalem was nothing. They had 2,000 soldiers and they were going up against 250,000 soldiers. What made the most sense is waving the white flag so they didn't all die, right? He says it makes no sense that they, that they did not surrender. Here's what he says. The inhabitants of the small, weak, and dependent kingdom of Judah had the audacity to believe that their God was the only true God whose power extended over all the earth For me, pondering how a small company of prophets and priests in Jerusalem inspired so many to believe and how their views about their God came to prevail so widely in later times defies imagination. Never before or since has so much depended on so few, believing so so wholly in their one true God and in such bold defiance of common sense. I love that. The only reason this happens... It's because they worship the God of the universe. I'm going to leave you with this one thought. I think the story teaches us that God can do more while we sleep than what we could do in a thousand lifetimes. And if that's the case, why would we not trust him? If that's the God that we worship, why would we not pray those kind of prayers to a big God like that? Or we would lay everything out before our Lord where we would realize that he is the God with the cattle on a thousand hills, with the army that's surrounding the valley. That's who our God is. So that when we encounter the difficult times, when we encounter the enemy who is staring right down in our face, what we trust is that we worship the God who can slay 185,000 people in the middle of the night. Uh, Martin Luther, I'll leave you with this last quote. He wrote a song 
This song came after he had defended his, his teachings at the Diet of Worms. He had to go into hiding because people were trying to kill him. And he wrote words that we still sing today. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amidst the flood of mortal, mortal ills prevailing. And still our ancient foe to seek to work us woe. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom never faileth. That's what we trust in today. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you for who you are. Even some of these Old Testament stories that maybe many times we've never read. Oh God, I pray that we would find great hope in these today because we get a big picture of a big God, you. Let us not lose sight of who you are. Let us never make you a small puny God, but the God who can slay 185,000. We love you, we believe in you, and we trust you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray, amen.